G'day everyone, how's it going? Um, really excited for today's interview. I've got Mr. Dufresne, the Mr. Dufresne from EPT Clean Oil, who's come to talk to us, um, all things sort of filtration, asset management, looking at lubrication as an asset. So um, really excited to get his insight. He's obviously got a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience within the industry. Um, really excited to get his take on it. And so if you know, maybe if we just dive straight in, if if we wouldn't, you wouldn't mind, because this will help introduce you and EPT. Could you please help tell the story of, um, you know, EPT, the the resin media filtration technology that you guys are probably most well known for, um, how that got started. I know your family was very involved, so maybe if we sort of tease that out, that'd be a really good uh, starting point. Sure. Well, nice to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, in 1992, uh, I was working in Toronto, which is sort of the financial district of Canada. And my dad uh, was fleet maintenance manager for a large energy company, gas transmission company in Canada that ran uh, 200 turbo compressors. And um, they, were, they were suffering from a lot of uh, failures where the root cause of failure was determined to be lubricant and lubricant deposits. And at the time, they, we didn't use the word varnish back then. They called them coking, they called them lubricant deposits. Uh, some people started to call them oil varnishing. And he was really fortunate to have supervisors that gave him a very wide latitude in solving the problem. And, and what he discovered very quickly was that the oil analysis was not measuring anything regarding what was causing the machines to fail. And when you talk about failing an RB211 or an LM2500, this is big money, right? Huge money. Um, these assets are supposed to be running like 98, 99% of the time was their targets. So when he dove into it, uh, he started doing a lot of reading and a lot of research. And what he figured out was that oxidation material is the root cause of oil failure. And in the case of their machines was also the root cause of equipment failure. And when they, as soon as they realized that the lubricant testing and the maintenance was really removing particulate and not addressing this root cause, it led his investigation to what can we do? So he read some uh, papers on ice change uh, that had been used out of its traditional um, application, which is water purification, mm -hmm. and um, started experimenting. And he, with 200 gas turbines, he, he did a third and a third and a third, uh, trying different techniques at different turbines and very quickly discovered some things worked really well. Some chemistries worked excellent and other chemistries didn't work very well. And then some, some sites were so far out of range, they were even beyond what ion exchange resin technology could do. So um, after about two years of research, he figured out what was working really well in one of his test regions and then implemented that on a fleet-wide basis. And the cost savings were dramatic. They went from four uh, complete turbine failures per year to zero. Um, they went from having to replace oil reservoirs every four to six years to no longer having to replace them. So quite a dramatic response. So uh, I remember the day very well. He called me and he said, Peter, uh, I got a call from the U.S. Department of Defense, and they asked if we'd be able to help them on the same problem that uh, TransCanada fixed. Yeah. So what do we do? And, um, you know, my dad's a brilliant engineer. Um, I'm a young up-and-comer guy at the time, didn't know a lot. And uh, I said, well, let's go take the meeting. 
So we had we went and had the meeting, and we get to the U.S. Navy base in this case because it was for the the carrier fleet, and uh, they wouldn't let us on because we were Canadian, and they said, "Well, that's alien. You're an alien." And I said. <laughs> We're meeting so-and-so and he said, I don't care who you are. You're not getting on my base. So we did the presentation right in the guard shack. Okay. Nice. And um, within a half an hour, they were convinced and they said, let's do it. Uh, when can you do a demonstration? We said eight weeks. So we came back eight weeks later with our demonstration unit and we, we couldn't get back. We couldn't get on the base again. They said, no way you're getting on our base. So you got to love um, the resourcefulness of the Navy. So they brought to the parking lot, uh, uh, power lights, a building, and we did the demonstration in the parking lot of the largest uh, West Coast Navy base. And um, we did it and it was working fantastic. And then I had the, the, the genius question. So what volume are you guys dealing with anyways? And they said, we got a, uh, we got a hundred cubic meters. And I was like, 100 cubic meters, and we're flowing like four liters a minute, and I got to filter it six times, right? So I'm doing the math in my head going, <laughs> sorry, this is going to take 20 years. So um, we did some on-the-site on the uh, discussion and negotiation, and they gave us 12 weeks. And in 12 weeks, we had a large machine. Uh, my dad mortgaged his house to build it. And it was, the paint was wet on it. And I, they were calling like every day, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? So it didn't even have a finishing coat of paint. It just had a primer paint on it. And uh, I drove it down to the military and um, I didn't even ask to get on the base this time. I just threw the keys at my contact and he took the truck on the base. And, and that was the start of EPT. Our first customer was the U.S. Navy. And we thought we had, we thought we were off to the races. Uh, incredible customer, right? We're going to hit the big leagues. But the truth, <laughs> the truth of the matter was, there was only two uh, aircraft carriers at that facility, and because they're all spread out, decentralized. So um, we did two ships, and it took us about um, about eight years to do them all, and then they were on a, a cyclical basis after that. But we had two customers at that point. We had uh, the gas transmission company in Canada and we had the US Navy. And although we had a great technology, we really didn't know what we were doing from a business perspective. So um, that was really interesting. So we've, we've had this journey over 30 years now. My dad has since retired and um, enjoying golf, but um, it took us 30 years and we've refined the technology to a point where its performance is just light years ahead of anything else like it on the market. And um, I, I, I just know based on the cost savings that people are achieving that it's, it's, it's very likely going to become the industry standard approach because there's really too much money involved to do things halfway there. Half measures are 0% effective, right? And this is where this is this, so this is where we're at. So um, we've gone after. So our third customer was the largest power plant in the United States, and then it went to the second largest in the United States, the third largest. It went to largest in Europe, the largest in Asia, and then we've been just filling in the gaps really over time, one customer at a time, to make sure that they get really good results. Yeah, that's wow. That's a kind of a really cool origin story. Uh, that's. Uh really neat I, I don't imagine that there's too many companies that start out with uh 
that much of a bang, to be honest. Um, maybe uh, just to throw in a, a initial technical question, because like you said, uh, a lot of people would be familiar with, let's say, resin media filtration from the the water treatment industry, yeah. where it kind of originated, uh, taking out contaminants. Um, many people would be familiar even with like home water purification systems, like yeah. removal of, yeah. of hardness, if you like, yeah. from the from the water. Um, how exactly does it does it work in an in an oil system, and what are the the major differences? Well, the major differences are that in the water application, people don't really care about precision to the same degree because they're regenerating the ion exchange resins over and over and over and over again. So even if it's at 90% or 80% capacity, we don't care because they'll regenerate it to 100% within the first week of operation and everything resets. But in the lubricant application, we are using virgin resins. We're not regenerating them because it's really not cost effective to do it at a local level. I mean, it's technically possible for like a half a million dollars, you could build the regeneration plant to regenerate ion exchange resin used in, in lubricant applications, but it's really not cost effective at this point, right? So the first major difference is quality because we're not using, um, we're using virgin product every time. Okay. Um, and then maybe uh, this is kind of a very base level question, but our objective with filtration technologies is at a very, very basic level, I want to take the bad stuff out and I want yeah. to keep the good stuff in. Um, now, let's say, for example, when most people conceptualize filtration technologies, they're probably thinking of particulate filters, right? Which uh, are only able to dis discriminate based on particle size. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like taking a very uh, blunt instrument uh, mm -hmm. to, to an application. What I understand with resin media is that we're trying to use uh let's say charge right uh okay. and, and polarity um okay. to be selective about the type of contaminants that we want to remove and that's because most you know oxidation products are polar but then of course there are a lot of additives that are also polar because they're you know surfactants or surface acting mm -hmm. how are we able to selectively remove the oxidation byproducts and without completely stripping out an additive package? This is a great question. Uh, when we started, we started only with uh, fire-resistant synthetic lubricants or FRFs for short, and they contain no additive. So yep. we could, it's like antibiotic going to the doctor. They could use a, a broad spectrum antibiotic can be as aggressive as possible with the chemistry because there's really no additives to remove. In fact, the fluid is pure additive. Okay, mm -hmm. if you want to look at it that way. Um, so as we moved into additized products, uh, we first started with uh, RNO lubricants used in rotating equipment. Yep. And those are about 98 to 99% pure base oil and only one to 2% additive of which 90% of that's comprised of antioxidants. So when you talk about these polar additives, there's, they're very limited yep. and they're, they're often short lived. So, um, yeah, so we've had to detune um, the range of the contamination we're removing um, so that we do not remove the additive in the oil. And this is one of the reasons why we, we test every site before we apply ion exchange resin, just to confirm to 100% degree of certainty that we don't remove additives. And it, it's kind of a, it's almost an unnecessary exercise if you've had the same brand of oil. We know brand A, B, C, D, and, We've done them a hundred times and they don't remove the additive. 
Um, as we move into more additized product, um, like AW oils, where there can be say 5% additive, it's, it's becoming more and more of what the science is about when engineering ion exchange resins. And, and that's actually where it's led to. Uh, we can't just take resins off the shelf and put them in a filter and expect them to work because the variability present is huge, okay? So we're lucky as specialists in this field, um, we need to use enough ion exchange resin that we have our own ion exchange resins made just for us, right? So then we can control the chemistry and it's really the tuning both on the chemical and physical side of the ion exchange resin bead so that we get exactly what we want, okay? So we are tuning the reservoir just like antibiotics are tuned. You want a very broad spectrum or you want a very narrow spectrum uh, programming on that resin. Okay. okay. Cool. So, I mean, that yeah. certainly explains one of the differences because, you know, let's say, for example, I go to the EPT uh, website. Um, I'll see a range of different filters available. Um, and so that explains some of the variation. Um, yeah. The other question I was going to ask you, though, is because the, the variation in products uh, seems to vary also depending on uh, lube oil type. So you, you, you talked about RNO and anti-wear, but let's say, for example, it's, it seems like there's a different uh, resin exchange filter for, let's say, a phosphate ester versus jet oil versus a mineral oil versus a, a synthetic. Now, is that also down to the fact that all of these different uh, turbine oil types uh, degrade in different ways? There's a little bit difference, actually. Um, phosphate ester, the breakdown pathway starts with water, right? Predominantly, yep. and then it manifests itself into full oxidation and condensation reactions, which are really unexpected. Uh, in the mineral oil, applications, it's much more uniform in terms of what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have oxidation that's produced and the antioxidants, the, the primary antioxidant normally naming will um, capture that radical so that whatever it comes into contact with from that point forth is unreactive, right? Yep. It doesn't remove it. It just, it just puts like a blanket around it so that it can't react anymore. Yep. And then that process continues over and over again. But what we're finding is that there's some really interesting aspects to that. If you let this process be completely unmanaged in your system, um, it consumes more additive, which is sort of counterintuitive, but um, the rate of breakdown has some relationship to the existing accumulated level of breakdown. Okay, so it's, it's not perfectly linear. It's more of an exponential curve. So what we find is that users quite often do nothing for the first half of the oil life cycle except remove the, the particulate. And then in the second half of the life cycle, that, that oil performance is impaired. Its physical properties are different. And that makes no sense to me. Like you'd never do that on your, on your sports car, right? Like, no, I, I would always want the best quality lubricant at all times in that, uh, assuming you're not driving an EV. But um, when you get into a $100 million machine, why do we accept impairment in quality and performance over that second half of the life cycle. It makes no sense to me, but this is the consequence of leaving chemistry unmanaged. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. The, the other thing that I've always found a little bit interesting, and this maybe goes more to sort of the site level is um, like you said, a hundred million dollar piece of equipment and the engineers will know every intimate detail of that gas turbine you know, the differences in 
the make and model from the version that we bought last year, the metallurgy differences, speed, rotation. They can recognize vibration signatures. They can recognize temperature variations. But when you ask them about the lubricant that protects their equipment, you, you're lucky if they know the brand and the viscosity grade. Um, it's is my experience at a, a lot of sites. Not true of all sites, but but in in a lot of cases, it seems like the the knowledge level for uh, for lubricants is is kind of lacking a little bit. You know, like that goes to the heart of is what an interesting topic. I can't tell you how many times I sat down in the control rooms at a power plant or someplace, and um, I start asking questions and I don't know how to run a power plant, but just what temperature, what's, you know, and then they start giving me the answers to this. And I said, well, do you got the lube oil analysis? So they pull up the lube oil analysis and I'm like, well, that's wrong. That's wrong. And it's like, you don't have any baselines. There's no reference standards. You don't know what new oil baselines are. Like, how do you interpret an oil analysis if you don't have that baseline? Yeah. What is it supposed to look like? Yeah. And I, I think, at least half the sites I've ever seen have no baselines. And it's just like, what? And then this one test here, they're doing this test every month, like RPVOT, that is a $500 test and they're doing it every month. And it's just like, whoa. And do you know that value is not ever expected to change like a particle code? Like that, that value is gonna change so gradually over time. You just don't need to do it monthly, right? Mm. And then even on that test, you don't have the baseline on that test. The, the value is completely meaningless. And how many times have people spent $500 on that test and there's no baseline? It's a waste of money. Yeah. So getting people just the basics, like five minutes of education on, on, on interpreting an oil analysis report um, is transformational in terms of what they can do with that information, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Maybe just to take a little bit of a step back to... Um you know, resin exchange uh, sure. filter technology and maybe a bit more about almost the philosophy of, of what we're trying to do um, with that technology because uh, I guess there are different approaches to managing this varnish problem, right? Um, where we see across the industry, there are a variety of different solutions that are proposed. Some of it is, you know, putting in additives to resolubilize, um, you know, the insolubles, um, then obviously we've got something like the the resin exchange as well. Um, you know, different putting in different additives, putting in slightly different base oils. Uh, a lot of those seem to be, hmm, how, how should I say, delaying the inevitable, right? So if I put a solubilizer in, it can resolubilize a certain amount of those. Uh, the varnish precursors if you like but at some stage i'm i've got to pay the piper if you like so yeah what, what what's the difference in that you guys see uh in the resin exchange technology in terms of let's say extending oil life this is a great question it goes to the heart of everything um, you're either in one of two positions right now. You're either managing the chemistry of your lubricants or you are not. And if you're using particulate, filtr filtration, water, removal, vacuum dehydration, these are all great things and we need them. But the oil quality, the chemistry is in an unmanaged state. Okay, so you can choose to wait four years, five years for problems to start manifesting. But 
those problems are predictable from day one because you are adding molecules to the equation that shouldn't be there. You are complicating the chemistry a little bit more every day. So to wait four years and then to use, say, one of these solubility additives to try and dissolve the varnish is just going to complicate the chemistry 10 times more. So it's sort of like um, moving the ball down the field, but it's not going to really ever get to the goal line. You're making the situation more complex. So what we're doing with ion exchange resins is actually removing the bad actors, removing the molecules that should not be in the oil so that the remaining additive in the oil or even the top-up oil with new additive in it is able to be used correctly, right? When you use top-up oil right now and you dump it into a system that is full of oxidation material, you just get reaction, 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 and you get complications and you get unpredictability. Um, and it, it's really not solving any problems. It's just moving the ball a little bit this way and then that way. And you're, you're going to have to, it's going to come home. It's, it's going to come back to get you. So is it removing it from the equation permanently allows the oil and the additives that were engineered by the oil company to use that oil to work properly. Mm. Okay. Um, and, and maybe another question about uh, deployment. So most of these filter technologies, I think, uh, are probably most associated with uh, the turbine and power generation industry. So we most commonly see them in steam turbine and gas turbine applications. And obviously that's where a lot of the focus has been on varnish and varnish precursors and all that kind of stuff. Um, do you see this technology being more widely adopted in other applications in the future? Um, you know, I, obviously we see it a little bit on hydraulic systems but sort of reaching further afield to other industrial applications. Um, do you ever see it being, I don't know, miniaturized um, for, for use elsewhere? Or is it the nature of power gen that you're dealing with such, such expensive assets, such huge oil reservoirs, um, you know, high temperatures that, that result in varnish, um, that that's where most of the focus is going to remain? Well, there's some truth to that because of the value of the production equipment, right? So uh, it hurts more if you're losing a million dollars a day than it does if you're losing 10,000 a day. But I would say that like, if you move into say hydraulic systems, some of these hydraulic systems used in general industrial applications are as sophisticated of what's in a power plant. It's just the only thing that's different is the production value. Yep. Okay. So if this machine goes down, it's it's causing problems but it's just not million dollar problems but they can be very real and very acute problems depending on on the facility uh, there's a lot of critical industrial machines used and they're just banging out uh, product um, on a regular basis and it's so so important that those machines work properly so i would say that it's not a miniaturization of the technology because it's really proportional to volume right yeah and the industrial systems will have well, it's based on their volume, the similar size equipment. So really the, the situation becomes how do we tune the technology and price the technology accordingly so that it works, it can work in that application. And it is, we, we, there's lots of critical applications out there in general industrial facilities and, and we are working in that area. So um, I think we're the first and um, I, I'm quite confident about the future in it. 
There's just too many operating problems. Varnish is not a problem for the power industry. Varnish is a problem with all lubricants used anywhere. And if you let those lubricants accumulate oxidation material past the point of saturation, you have solid varnish, okay? It's that simple. So if you keep the oil in an unsaturated state, you can't have varnish. And that's what the ion exchange resins do. Um, so no, it has broad applicability in industry with uh, a variety of lubricants. Okay. And maybe continuing on that theme, um, what do you see more broadly as being the future for filtration technologies? Um, so, it, you know, we, we sort of went from, uh, you know, if you think of the evolution of, of yeah. fil filtration, it was just a mesh screen and then depth media came along. And then we have, you know, obviously progressing through to this kind of uh, resin technology. Is there a next step? There is actually, and it's, it's sort of, um, it's interesting, great question. Uh, when I talk about contamination, we talk about solid contamination and um, water contamination, and then we have the dissolved contamination. And I'd say they're all equally important, right? Um, on the particle side, what's interesting to learn is that conventional filtration is only removing 10% of it, right? 90% of most solid material is below the range of all filtration. Even depth filtration only gets down to about one micron. Um, so we like patch weight testing because patch weight testing, you can't hide uh, behind it. And in looking at the mass of the contaminant in the system relative to um, where it should be is a really good starting point. So um, depending on the sophistication of the application, you can go down to one one thousandth of a micron by using electrostatic oil cleaning technology. And that's going to be application dependent where you need that, right? Um, so I think there's so much we can do on the solid contamination removal because we're really only removing about 10% right now. Mm -hmm. When we move into water contamination, I think the industry has got a really good handle on this and dissolved water, uh, emulsified water, uh, free water, you know, vacuum dehydration is a great technology um, when you use it in the right space. The, the question I find people uh, having difficulty with is what is the rate of ingress? So don't apply a machine that will take out 2000 PPM a day on a system that's only has 40 PPM ingress, right? So for the most part, we're, we're doing great on water. Now on the, the soluble side of the equation, the dissolved, the, the dissolved contamination, there's barely any work being done in this area. And this is where all the problems are occurring, right? This is the root cause of oil failure is on the dissolved side of the equation. So we need to get there. We need to get there as soon as possible. Start managing this wherever we can. Um, RNO oils, AW oils, um, uh, jet lubes, phosphate esters, quite a wide, wide variety of lubricants. And, and wherever that's required to manage, manage it, right? Um, if you can manage the chemistry of the fluid, uh, incredible things happen in terms of the life cycle and the sustainability of the, of the products we're using, right? These products can last years and years and years if we, if we treat them like assets and not as just disposable consumables, right? Yeah, yeah. I'd really like to um, sort of pick up on that point. Um, but just going back to the, uh, the water ingress, it's interesting you talk about looking at the rate of ingress versus what the systems are designed for. Because you're right, I've worked with a couple of power plants, you know, notably the top end of Australia yeah. and a little bit in Southeast Asia. And the humidity is so high in those in those areas well, that even even with some of the uh, vacuum dehydration technologies, they you know they keep just 
putting on larger and larger skids and they, they still really uh, struggle to keep up just because of the, you're right, like the, the rate of ingress is so much higher just because of, you know, they, they're working basically in 100% humidity all the time. And, you know, that's not necessary to have all that pain and suffering. That is, that is the simplest thing to solve. And everybody looks at me like I'm from Mars when I tell them, well, why are they doing that? Like, why don't you just put a dry gas blanket or a small nitrogen generator on there and reverse that cycle? And they're like, you can do that? And it was like, yes, nitrogen generation was not the best invention in the 70s, but it was a good one. And yeah. um, we can make nitrogen wherever, like we're breathing 70% nitrogen right yeah. now, more than that, actually. Uh, to put that on top of lubricants in humid environments is gold. You can triple, quadruple your life, your lubricants with that one step alone. And not only that, um, I was at a site near the ocean at a big power plant and they they manifold their breather elements. So they have like six of them, right? Because they only last like three or four days, right? So I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. Just reverse the flow of this, put a dry gas blanket on there and exhaust out the breather element, preferably with nitrogen because it's inert. And you know what? It also regenerates the breather elements. Now I've always been waiting for the breather element hitman to show up at my door and say, you're costing us too much money by putting nitrogen on systems. But we're not trying to decrease the revenues uh, of the filtration business, quite, quite the opposite. It's like, if we can put the customer in a position where they can make some success and eliminate some problems, guess what they're going to do? They're going to keep on going and, and generate many more sustainable initiatives at that same company, right? And there's a thousand things every company can do uh, to be more sustainable and to improve actually the bottom line. Is to, and it all starts with, you have to get some small victories, right? Yeah. If, if, if they don't win the first few, they're just going to give up and they're not going to try anymore. But putting nitrogen on top of hydraulic systems or lube oil systems and humid environments is the biggest no-brainer in the filtration industry could ever do. Like it will happen everywhere eventually, right? Everywhere. Mm. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, so now to go back to the, the point that you were making about treating lubricants as, a, as an asset. Um, yeah. now I guess I'd like to get your take on why do you think it has been so difficult, uh, in, with many of our customers to sell that idea? Um, you know, in, so in, in my experience, actually, you know what, I'm not going to talk about my experience cause that'll be leading the witness. I'll let you, I'll let, I'll let you the answer witness. the question. You know what, it starts with a mindset change. And right now I understand where they're coming from because I always get the call. I always get the phone call, Peter, my oil's halfway dead. What do we do? And then to try to convince the boss to spend money on a half dead oil seems mm. counterintuitive, right? No, the question they always look at is, well, I'll just replace it. If, if it's more than 50% of the price of the oil, then I'm just going to replace it. You can't look at oils that are half dead as not being worth uh, investing in. You can change the oil and start over if you want, but I'm going to say don't prematurely dispose of that oil. It's just the sooner we can get a chemistry solution on that oil, the, the longer you're going to be able to extend the oil. So our approach is really, instead of adding additives, aftermarket additives into your lubricant to try and um, delay the inevitable for a year, it's like, let's put ion exchange resin technology on there to manage the chemistry, manage the acid number, 
And then we're going to stabilize the rate of breakdown. We're going to reduce how much additive is consumed year over year, right? And, and really transform the situation. Um, if you can add top-up oil, whatever brand you're using right now, if you can add 5% new oil on top of a system that is, has the chemistry managed, good things will happen. Right now, you, you put in 5% top-up of brand XYZ, um, it's not going to have any effect because it's going to react on the very first day with the accumulated garbage in that system. And it's going to, it's going to waste it. But if you can manage the chemistry and remove all that reactive material from the oil, then you're not going to have that. So I think the industry has a real incredible opportunity to change the game for themselves, but they just have to stop looking at the question is, well, should I spend this much oil or should I spend any money on an oil that's half dead? And the question is, well, maybe not. I'm going to advocate that you should, but let's start, let's start earlier next time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, that makes sense. I guess one of the things that I've always wondered though, is let's say, for example, as a, as a supplier, whether it's, whether you're a lubricant supplier or a filtration supplier or something like that, it always seems to be, again, this is just my opinion, more difficult to get the ear of, you know, the, the maintenance superintendent or, or even the procurement procurement officer than it would, let's say if I were a bearing OEM, right? For, for some reason, it seems like hardware uh, you know, physical hardware that I can see always seems to trump uh, the value that lubricants brings every time. Um, now, that's not to say that that can't change. Um, but again, just in your opinion, what do you see as maybe being some of the levers that as an industry, we can try and pull to um, put forward the value that we can bring to, to these organizations? I think and this, this, is, this is going to come out a little overstated, but if you want to get dramatic effect with your customers, just tell them that, you know, 100% of the maintenance you're doing right now on your lubricant is targeting 0% of the problem. And our job is to turn that upside down and that's get that existing maintenance spend focused on the root cause of the problem. Okay. And then you're going to save a ton of money, like, and plus most importantly, you're going to not have any failures and you're going to look like a hero at work. Um, we used to laugh. Um, I've had three or four instances where customers have been, got a job promotion, like, and you know, I can't promise a job promotion by managing lubricant quality, but you know what? you look good to the boss. If you start managing the cause of failure, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's just a, it's an interesting challenge, I think for, uh, for the industry and, um, there's a lack of training. So what yeah. you're doing here is incredible because um, people, <laughs> let's just put it this way. Uh, net zero 2050 is an impossible target unless everybody starts doing something different. And I was saying, you know, for almost a million years, um, humans have been burning fossil fuels to uh, feed themselves for security and to control their own destiny. And in a twisted sense of irony, we're left in the same position now to control our own destiny. We need to be more sustainable. We need to figure out better ways to do everything that we're doing. And there's thousands of things that we can do. So let's, let's 
stop waiting for somebody to solve the problems and let's just solve them ourselves, right? Why are we waiting for our politicians? Like, there's no way a politician is going to solve this problem for us. Yeah. Let's take matters into our own hands and let's fix what we can fix. Let's learn however we can learn. And, and that's, let's employ some of this learning into improved maintenance strategies, right? It seems like the industry, and it varies from site to site, but the industry has a uh, amazing potential in terms of where their starting point is. The, the baseline is so low. The expectations are so low right now, right? Yep. If we can transform some of these businesses and get some of the young people coming up um, to actually change their companies and influence change to more sustainable practices, like oh, like incredible things are going to happen. Every dollar saved is a dollar that's saved every single year. So yeah. if you would reinvest that $1 in sustainable approaches, uh, good things are going to happen. So we, we do need to look at a longer term perspective and oil is definitely not a disposable consumable um, over and over again. Like people are doing it right now because it's easy and they don't know a different way to do it. Yeah. And uh, timely. I mean, obviously with uh, COP26 having just finished, uh, yeah. I think now is probably the time to sell the idea that lubricants need to be part of your, your strategy um, pretty much all businesses that I work with anyway have signed up to some kind of decarbonization strategy, whether whether their timeline is 2030, 2040, 2050, it doesn't really matter. But yeah, I think that's that's a really good angle to take. If you can take yeah. that sustainability angle, um, then I think we can potentially make a lot of headway there. So well, um, what we do in our homes and our personal choices is, is really just unfortunately limited. Like... Um, we can make all the right decisions at home and it's going to have barely an incremental approach. Right. But if at work at work, if we can influence change, incredible things can happen. Like we have uh, some of these large power plants we work with in the world um, are burning equivalent to 5,000, uh, oh, sorry, uh, 1400 rail cars of coal a day. <laughs> like that's incredible. Like, can you imagine the optimization that can occur if we focused on, you know, five or six of these facilities on earth and, and actually made them more efficient, like incredible. Yeah. So I'm really excited, actually. I, I, some people are pessimistic on this and they don't want to acknowledge it, but, you know, business is going to figure this all out. Business doesn't need politics to figure things out. The, the dollar figures things out. So as soon as the game is understood, as soon as the taxation and economics are established, business is going to solve this problem, but, and, and they're going to, they're going to do it probably quicker than anybody thinks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that seems like a really optimistic note to end on. <laughs> Mr. Dufresne, thank you so much for, uh, for your insight, um, both on obviously the, uh, you know, filtration technology, resin media, uh, but also on this idea of uh, how do we, how do we change maybe perception in the industry to view lubricants and lubrication management? Uh, as more of an asset management type activity. So yeah, really appreciate your time and, and thank you very much. Thank you.